Well, turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. So no, that's not our text for today, but that's where I want us to start. John chapter 18. Because the title of the sermon, What is Truth?, comes from John 18, 38. This is where, it's on page 905, if you're using a pew Bible. This is where Jesus is standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. The Jews had him arrested. They turned him over to Rome to be crucified as a traitor. Pilate had really no interest in this Jewish squabble. And so he's looking for a reason to let Jesus go. And the route that Pilate decides to take is to ask Jesus, you know, so are you the king of the Jews? And I think Pilate is hoping Jesus would just adamantly say, say no. And then Pilate could go back and say, see, your charges against him are unfounded. So Pilate's looking for a reason to let Jesus go. And he asks Jesus if Jesus is the king. Jesus appears to dodge the question, you know, how does he answer this? You know, is he an earthly king? Well, no. But is he the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created? Well, yes. And so that kind of does make him the king. And so it appears that Jesus is dodging the answer. He's really not. Pilate asks him a second time if he's the king. Jesus responds this way in verse 37. So he says to Pilate, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate, Pilate says, perhaps with a sneer, you know, what is truth? Pilate's response has been repeated by countless skeptics throughout the ages. The question, what is truth, haunts the minds of many who struggle to make sense of life's many contradictions and tragedies. Now, you might not be like that, but there are many in the world today who really struggle. They look at the world and they, they ask the question, you know, how could there be truth? You know, on one hand, the soil of the Midwest produces enough crops to feed millions. And on the other hand, the soil in Nepal splits open and devours thousands in a devastating earthquake. And on the one hand, there are fathers who would, they would fall down on a bomb you know, to save their daughters. You know, those daughters are the sweetest thing in the world to them. They would give their own lives for their daughters. And then on the other hand, there are fathers in this world who would sell their daughters into sex slavery. And what a contradiction. On one hand, there are people who just seem to love life. They've got great friends. They love their family. And they just love living. And there are other people who just feel so constantly lonely and constantly hopeless that hardly a day goes by that they don't ask themselves the question, you know, why should I even be here? They don't tell themselves, I should just disappear, be better off without me. Life is full of these contradictions, and they, they weigh on us. What do, we, what do we do in light of them? How are we to make, what are we to make of them? How are we to make sense of such a, a difficult world? Is there no justice? And so this is where they resonate with Pilate. You know, is there, is there no truth? Biologists tell us, you know, it's, it's all in our genes. We are nothing more than complex biological machines living out our genetic code. Psychologists tell us that it's all in our environment. You know, we're nothing but a step in the evolutionary chain affected by the things around us. Truth is meaningless, they say. We live and then we will die one day to join the cosmic dust. 
But deep down, I think we know better. You know, we can't shake the feeling that truth is, you know, that our lives matter, that that people are important, not merely for what they can produce, not merely for what what they can do, but for, for who they are. Deep down, we believe that God made us, that he made us for a reason. He put us here for a reason. You know, you're not an accident. I'm not an accident. But how can we know what that reason is? How can we know the the, the truth of our existence? You know, how can we understand our place in this vast cosmos? I mean, if there there is a God and he, he really did make us, well, how do we know what we're here for? What is truth? And this takes us to perhaps the central claim of Christianity. God has spoken. He has revealed himself to us in his word, the Bible. Not only did God make us, which is amazing in and of itself, but God has made himself known to us. It seems to me not to be a very long logical step to go from God is God has spoken. That doesn't seem like a stretch to me. Now, at Mount Vernon, we have a statement of faith. It's a summary of what we believe. And our statement of faith begins right here. Here it is. I'm quoting. So if you're a member of the church, this is what you said you believed when you joined the church. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. What is truth? Pilate asked. Well, the Christian answers. God is truth, and God has revealed himself to us in his word. Now, our passage this morning is John chapter 16. If you turn over a page in your Bible, you'll find it on page 902 of your pew Bible. The Jewish people had long, had long believed that God's spirit had inspired the prophets to deliver to them God's word in what we refer to as the Old Testament. But in our passage, John 16, 12 to 15, we find the promise that Jesus will send his spirit, the spirit of God, who will once again inspire men to record God's truth. So we know the truth today in 2015 because God spoke back then by the Son through the Spirit to the apostles that we might have a written record of God's divine truth. We are in the Gospel of John. It is, as you know, a a record of the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, By chapter 14, Jesus' ministry is drawing to an end. It's drawing to a close. Even even as Jesus is speaking uh, in these chapters, 14 through 17, even as Jesus is speaking, Judas is betraying him. Now, just think about that. As Jesus is talking, preparing his disciples for his departure, Judas is plotting for his departure. And all that is taking place even at the very beginning of chapter 14. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says to his disciples, he's got the apostles there. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You know, Jesus knows that they're very sad to hear that he's leaving. He wants them to know everything's going to be okay. Don't let your hearts be troubled. 
Look at John 14, verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even, or that is, the Spirit of truth. You, a few words later, he says, you know him. You know this Spirit of truth, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. So I take that to mean as Jesus is ministering in proximity to the disciples, as Jesus is in their midst, so the Spirit is in their midst, right? Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one. But Jesus is saying more than that here. He's saying that one day the Spirit's not just going to be in their midst, but the Spirit's going to be inside them. The Spirit's going to dwell in them. Chapter 14, verse 26, we discover that the, what the Spirit will do for the apostles very important verse, verse 26, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus said a lot to the disciples. Uh, he taught regularly to them. And, and one day when the Spirit comes, the Spirit is going to invade the life of the apostles and the Spirit's going to teach them all things, not some things, but all things. And parallel to that, with that, he's going to remind them of everything the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus, had taught them. Now, this is really important because John 14, 26 is really a parallel passage to John 16, 12 to 15, where Jesus is promising that the Spirit's going to come. He's going to inspire the apostles ultimately to write the word of the living, living God. So again, the disciples hearing this are, are to be thinking, okay, I know you're leaving Jesus, but you're telling me good things are happening, so I'm going to try to be comforted. In verse 26, so that's what we see in verse 26. And then in John 15, Jesus promises that suffering will come. Now, that's not an encouraging word. You know, suffering is going to come. The disciples are going to be treated the way Jesus is going to be treated. Jesus, you know, was was crucified. Uh, the disciples, many of them, are going to wind up martyred themselves. But in the midst of it all, John chapter 15, verse 26, once again, Jesus draws their attention to the work of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth. He says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. So it looks like the Father and the Son are sending the Spirit, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. So, guys, suffering's coming. You're going to be tempted to have your mouth shut. All I can tell you is that the Spirit is going to make sure that not everyone has their mouth shut. The Spirit is going to make sure that even when the suffering comes, even when the pressure is put on you, my name is going to be proclaimed. The Spirit of truth will make Christ known. Last week, John 16 we saw that when the Spirit comes, verse 8, when the Spirit comes, Jesus says the world is going to be convicted of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Spirit is going to open our eyes to our sin, open our eyes to our need for a Savior. You know, it's like Jesus is saying, guys, don't worry. The Spirit's going to do the work. You know, this enlightening work of the Spirit is coming. You're going to see clearly, but not just you. All those who hear and receive the gospel, they're going to see clearly too. They're going to be convicted of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And how's that going to happen? You know, how is it that people who are blind to their sin, who don't see their need for a Savior, how is it that, that that's going to change, that the blinds are going to be taken off? Well, that takes us to our passage, John chapter 16, verse 12. 
I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you." All right, well, Jesus, as you can tell, has been speaking now for quite some time. Uh, the disciples are pretty overwhelmed. They, they can't bear to hear anymore. I mean, I think it's a combination of their sorrow over Jesus' impending departure, a combination of their sorrow of the reality of upcoming persecution. And uh, so they're, they're worried about Jesus leaving. They're worried about their suffering. Jesus is so tender. He, he knows what's going on in their heart. And he says, you know, I'm, I, I can't tell you everything right now. It's too much for you to bear. In the midst of their worry, though, Jesus reminds them that there's still more for them to know. He reminds them that the spirit of truth is coming. That spirit is going to guide them, those disciples, those apostles. He's going to guide them into all truth. And since Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6, well, then we know that the spirit of truth reveals Jesus. But that's not all. Jesus says the Spirit does not speak on his own authority. Now, Jesus had said that about himself in John 14, 8. He said, you know, I don't speak on my authority, but I speak on the authority of the one who sent me. Well, and likewise, Jesus says, and the Spirit's going to come. And the Spirit's not going to speak on his own authority either. So what have you got? The picture is you've got the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. You've got the Spirit of God both of them invading the lives of these apostles, these disciples, and both of them at work, neither of them working on their own authority, presumably both of them working by the authority of God the Father. So Jesus is showing us that the, the, the Son, Him, and the Spirit are totally, totally unified. The Spirit of God and the Son of God absolutely on the same page, working out the plan that God the Father gave them to execute. They are perfectly executing the orders of the Father. I love that. I read uh, that on Friday night, Saturday morning, uh, Eastern Standard Time, uh, Army Delta Force guys invaded, I shouldn't say invaded Syria, but they were in Syria, and they invaded an ISIS compound. And uh, I mean, those guys got to be tough, um, understatement of the day. And uh, they invaded. But the thing that stuck out to me was, you know, the ISIS, I guess, CFO that was taken out uh, was taken out and his wife was captured. And apparently there were no American casualties and there were more, no civilian casualties. And I mean, you've just got to believe me, I, I wasn't thinking about a sermon illustration, but I was just struck. Those guys must have been on the same page. I mean, how do you do that? You know, I mean, that type of pressure, I, I would wilt. They knew exactly what the plan was. They knew exactly what they needed to do. You know, everybody had one another's back. They were totally unified on whatever plan the commanding officer had given them. It, it's amazing. They were unified regarding their mission. And so Jesus and the Spirit are like that. We see it in verse, thing, verse 13. You know, whatever the Spirit hears the Son say, that's what he's going to speak, totally unified. Whatever the Son speaks, that's what the Spirit's going to say 
to the disciples, to the, the apostles. He's going to perfectly declare the words of the Son to the disciples, all in accordance with the plan of God the Father. And not only that, we get this idea that the Spirit loves the Son because the Son says, He will glorify me. You know, why is He going to glorify Him if He doesn't, if he doesn't love Him, if He doesn't genuinely want Jesus Christ to be honored, for His name to be praised? Verse 14, Jesus says, He will glorify me. And so, you know, Jesus knows the day is coming when everybody around Him is going to abandon Him. Jesus is about to be left by His friends. You know, he's about to be abandoned by his family. He's going to be absolutely alone, standing before a Roman governor, having, you know, conversations about the nature of truth, you know, while Peter is cowering away, while all the disciples are wondering what hit them, but none of them really coming to Jesus' defense. But you know what? Jesus knows the Spirit is going to glorify him. The Spirit loves him. The Spirit is going to make sure that Jesus Christ is proclaimed. Jesus can look forward to the Spirit's work, bringing glory to Him. The Spirit will glorify Him. So the Spirit delights in the Son. He, he loves to declare that. He loves to declare the meaning of the mission of the Son. It's a mission that the Father gave the Son. That's why in verse 15, Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. All that the Father has is mine. Well, it was the Father's plan to save the lost, and the Father gave that plan to Jesus. So that great, wide plan of redemption given by the Father to the Son, so it's now Jesus' mission to carry it out. And so what's the Spirit going to do? The Spirit is going to glorify the Son by proclaiming that plan. And so it's why I said last week, and it's very hard to, you know, explain the Trinity and, you know, smarter theologians that I describe it as an, you know, an incomprehensible mystery. So we've got to be careful. Three in one, one in three, you know, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Spirit is not the Son, the Spirit is not the Father, and so on, however many combinations there are there. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. It's an incomprehensible mystery. That's certainly true, but it's like the Father is the general, and He's got this great plan, you know, in the Father's mind was your salvation, I mean, planned out before the foundation of the world. So He's got this great plan of redemption, and then the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the soldier, and He executes the plan, and then you've got the Spirit, and the Spirit delights to report on this plan. He delights to see that gospel, that mission proclaimed, and Jesus delights in that too. And so, therefore, the Spirit delights in, glorifies the Son. Now, remember what Jesus said to Pilate then, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Well, how will Jesus bear witness to the truth? Well, he told us in John, John 16, through the Spirit. And, and who is of the truth? Well, those who listen, those who listen to Jesus, who genuinely listen, who submit to Jesus, absolutely. But it's those who, who have the Spirit of God, right? How do, you, how do you know the truth? 
Well, those who have the Spirit of God know the truth. How do you know you have the Spirit? Well, Jesus says, you, you listen to me. Those who listen to me have the Spirit of, of God. Uh, turn, if you would, stay where you are. Keep one finger there, but turn to 1 John chapter 3. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments, that's the commandments of Jesus, the King Jesus, whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them, right? These are people who, who are listening to Jesus. They're keeping it, they're listening to Jesus. Right. Are they of the truth? Well, they're listening to Jesus. They're obeying him. They must be of the truth. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So Jesus says the spirit is going to bear witness to him. He is the truth. How do we know we are of the truth? Well, we, we obey his commandments. We listen to his voice. It means we, we have the spirit. But just notice that the heart of it all is Jesus Christ and him saying, by the way, I am the truth. And this is a radical, radical claim. The Holy Spirit bears witness to him. The spirit of truth bears witness to Jesus, who is the truth. It is uh, it's NBA playoff time. Uh, you should know that because the Hawks are doing well. Uh, a few years ago, uh, LeBron James said when he went to Miami, something like, we're going to win seven, eight, nine championships here. He claimed that he'd, he'd bring that to the heat, a radical claim, uh, but he couldn't deliver. And yet you've got Jesus standing before Pilate saying, do you want to know the truth? Do you want to know the meaning of life? You know, do you want to know? Do you want to know the truth? And Jesus says, it's all about me. It is absolutely all about me. You're asking me if I'm the king. Let me tell you, I am the truth. And everyone, Jesus says, who is of the truth listens to me. And, and how do we listen to him? All right, John 16, 12 to 15, by going to the word of God, inspired by the spirit of God, by going to the word, which is the fruit of Jesus Christ, sending that spirit to speak everything that Jesus said. And that's the point of the text. We know the truth by going to the word of God inspired by the spirit of God. And John 16, 13 is key. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. It's because the spirit of truth was at work in the lives of those apostles, helping them to remember everything Jesus said that we have the Bible. Now, some of you are about to have a fit because I've gone on so long, you don't even know what the outline is. Like, what am I supposed to write down? All right? Uh, I don't want to lose my job. You want an outline. So here we go. All right? Two observations. Because of that, two observations that I, I think we've got to have in our heart. We've got to have deep down in our heart. First, the Spirit gave us an authoritative word because of everything I've just said. We've got to trust that the Spirit gave us an authoritative word, a, a reliable word, a trustworthy word. The Spirit gave that to us. Look again at John 16, 12. Jesus made it clear that he would not be able to tell the apostles everything they needed to know. They couldn't bear it. They'd have to wait for the Spirit of truth to come and guide them into all truth. The Spirit would reveal the truth of Christ 
to the apostles in the Word. And because the Word is from the Spirit and because the Spirit is God, it is a reliable and authoritative Word. And so it's important to understand that the Spirit did not speak a word separate from Jesus, right? It's not like Jesus spoke and he had his data and then the Spirit racked his mind and came up with some other data and they put it together and presto Bible. No, that's not what happened at all. Rather, the Spirit is simply the one who unpacked what Jesus already revealed. I think that's what's going on in in verse 12 and 13. Jesus is saying the Spirit is going to unpack what I've already revealed. So think of it like this. It's like Jesus came to earth and he had all this luggage. And all this luggage was filled with all the revelation that he had, all the words that he had from God the Father to give to the people. And in his earthly ministry, he opened up all the luggage. I mean, he opened it all up in his earthly ministry. There's so many great things about his nature, about his character, about the character of God, about the plan of the cross, about the second coming. I mean, it's all there, but it wasn't all unpacked. And Jesus is sitting down with these apostles and he's saying, you know, I I can't tell you everything. I can't unpack everything, but don't worry. The Spirit's going to come and he's going to unpack everything that I've already revealed to you. And that's what the New Testament is. It's the Spirit's unpacking of Jesus's teaching. And that's why the author of Hebrews can say that in the past, God spoke through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son, Hebrews 1-2. And so that's why the Bible is sometimes called the word of Christ, because it's the spirit unpacking Jesus's teaching. By the way, that's Colossians 3-16. Now, all of the Bible, the Old Testament spoken by the prophets, The New Testament spoken by Jesus through the Spirit and recorded by the apostles is the authoritative Word of God. It's the truth of God delivered to us. And as a result, it is very important that we not pit parts of the Bible against itself. So I'm thinking of Thomas Jefferson who put together the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It was a little book that he he cut and pasted the, the bits of the Bible he liked, which ended up basically being the moral, you know, ethical teachings of Jesus. And Jefferson cut out the bits that he really didn't like, the supernatural bits. You know, basically it ended up being, you know, he cut out the Old Testament and most of the New Testament, right? I remember being in D.C. and going to a parachurch ministry one afternoon and the leader of that ministry giving me uh, a book which was basically, you know, the four Gospels, as if to say, this is what really matters, you know. This is what you really need to focus on. Focus on the teachings of Jesus and, and don't worry about the rest. A few years ago, I met a single man who professed to be a Christian uh, but decided that he would move in with his girlfriend who did not profess to be a Christian. And he thought that that was the best way to help her become a Christian. That was not wise. That was not a good thing. So he and I are talking, and I mean, I don't want it to be like, you know, this is my opinion because I'm a Baptist and you shouldn't do that. You know, I know enough that that's not the best way to a man's heart. So I went to the Bible. And uh, I said, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. Let's just think about marriage and what marriage is supposed to be like and, and purity and maybe the best way for you to honor this girl that I know you, you deeply care about. And so we're talking through some of these verses. And I could tell as we're talking 
uh, right about there we were talking, and, um, and he said, well, Aaron, he was kind of frustrated. He said, look, you know, that's, that's Paul, not Jesus. And so what I discovered, I, I didn't know that he had done this, but what I discovered in that, in, that, in that response to me was that he put a wedge between the teaching of Jesus recorded in the Gospels and basically the rest of the New Testament, and especially those bits that might challenge the way he was living his life. Now, do I think a careful reading of Jesus' words would challenge how he was choosing to live his life? Live his life? I, I do. I do. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul did an amazing job unpacking Jesus' revelation about holiness and applying it directly to our lives. And that's what this man wanted to ignore. One of the most important questions that we can ever ask is, what is our ultimate authority? You know, when all is said and done, what guides the decisions that you make? You know, what do you, how do you decide something is right or something is wrong? There's lots of options. There are some who would say that the church is our final authority. So the Roman Catholic Church, for example, insists that we are saved by faith and by, by works, and they would say that we are the final authority. God has entrusted truth to the church, and so you cannot disagree with the church and still be a faithful Christian. What does that, does that make it true? Well, no. You know, we must take the teaching of the church to the touchstone of Scripture and ask, ask ourselves what God says. You know, we should be very thankful. I hope you're thankful to be at a church that has a statement of faith that begins the way our statement of faith begins. It's a good way to begin. You know, the Word of God is the Word of God. It is truth. It is, it is true truth, absolutely trustworthy. Praise God for that. We should be thankful for elders who, who do intend to have their own lives governed by Scripture and intend to, if you will, govern the church under the authority of God's Word. We should be thankful for that. But each and every one of us has a responsibility to know the Word of God ourselves so that we can discern truth from error. Now, some would say that our feelings are the final authority in our lives, the ultimate authority. To thy own self be true. And there are times when what we feel is very hard to distinguish from what is real. So I will always remember the conversation I had uh, with an individual who left his wife, and I'm on the phone, and we're talking about this, and, you know, I'm exploring what's going on. I don't know him really well, but it's very clear in this conversation that he had no biblical grounds to leave his wife, but he chose to leave her. And, you know, I'm pretty new here. Uh, trying to love him, trying to serve him really well, and trying to let him know that the, 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 the Bible wouldn't grant him the freedom to do what he's doing. And he says, it doesn't matter. God, God told me to do this. And what I learned was that his feelings were his ultimate authority. At the end of the day, God was like a little servant to his feelings. His feelings wore the crown, and God was like the puppy dog following his heart. And I just, that shouldn't be that way. I mean, no. You know, let your, your feelings are real. And, you know, obviously they're going to impact you. But your, your feelings have to be chained to the Word of God, not the other way around. And there, I think there are so many people who struggle with making so much of their feelings that they can't hear Scripture clearly. Better yet, they won't hear Scripture clearly. As Christians, we say that Scripture is our ultimate authority. 
According to 2 Peter 1.21, in Scripture, we have the words of, as Peter put it, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is Peter finally understanding John 16, 12 to 15. Men spoke from God. They spoke from God as they were carried along by God. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by God. The Spirit guided the apostles into all the truth. The Bible is the very Word of God revealed by the Spirit of truth to apostles chosen by God. The Bible is therefore the truth that we must trust and obey. I love how Kevin DeYoung put it in his great little book, Taking God at His Word, which we have in the bookstall. He said, for Christians, our authority is the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Of course, we can misunderstand and misapply the Word of God, but when interpreted correctly, paying attention to the original context, considering the literary genre, thinking through authorial intent, the Bible is never wrong in what it affirms and must never be marginalized as anything less than the last word on everything it teaches. Now, what does this mean for you? It means that when you open the Bible, you can have confidence that God is speaking to you. When you open the Bible, you can have confidence that God is speaking to you. And brothers and sisters, that's true on Tuesday morning when you open the Bible on your kitchen table. You know, you wipe the sleep out of your eyes. You've got the cup of coffee in your hand and you open up the word of the living God. And you can be sure that God is speaking to you for the word, from the word. How can you be sure of that? Because Jesus said the Spirit would guide the apostles into all truth. The Spirit helped the apostles remember everything Jesus had said. The Spirit unpacked all of Jesus' teaching. And so whenever you, you open your Bible, the Word of God, God is speaking to you. How great is that? And even now, it's we're standing under together. We're submitting our lives together as one people to the Word of God. We can trust that as John is faithfully preached. God is speaking to us. It means that when you open the Bible, you can have confidence that God is speaking to you. It also means that you don't have to believe the lies of the devil or the lies of your own heart. We live in a fallen world where each of us is tempted to believe false, wrong, bad, unhelpful, untrue things. We're tempted to believe God isn't there. We're tempted to believe God doesn't care. We're tempted to believe God's word isn't reliable. You know, Aaron, don't you know what Luther said? Yes, I know what Luther said. We're tempted to believe we can never change. But those are our feelings talking. What does the word of God say? Is God real? Deuteronomy 4.39, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Does God care? Does God care about you? Matthew 6, 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Yes, you are, Jesus says. Is God's word reliable? Well, besides all the verses that I've mentioned from John, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Can we change I don't know what you're struggling with, Christian, but can you change? Can you grow? Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, brothers and sisters, the, the Bible is a great gift from God to us, and we shouldn't take it for granted. And I don't know if you've been doing that. 
You know, obviously, I know you've been coming, coming to the services, and I'm so thankful for that, but that's not my question. My question is, have you been taking the Word of God for granted? Have you just let it collect dust at your home? Have you failed to open it up with your family? Have you failed to personally rejoice in the fact that when you open it up, you've got God speaking right to your heart? God's Word is authoritative. The Spirit gave us an authoritative Word. Let's read it. All right, that's the first observation. Here's the second one. The Spirit gave us a gospel-centered word. The Spirit gave us a gospel-centered word. Look again at John 16, 14. Jesus says about the Spirit, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, this is Jesus talking about the Spirit. The Spirit will glorify the Son. As I said before, part of the Spirit's job is bringing honor and glory to the Son. This doesn't make the Spirit less than the Son, but it does mean that the Spirit delights in the Son just as the Son delights in the Spirit and in the Father. How does the Spirit glorify the Son? How does that happen? The answer is at the end of verse 14. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, in this case, the you is referring primarily to the apostles. But what is it that the Spirit will declare to the apostles? The answer is in verse 15. He will declare all that the Father has. So all that the Father has has been given to Jesus, and Jesus has now given it to the Spirit to declare. But what is it? What is all that the Father has? What did the Father give the Son for the Spirit to proclaim? Well, in the broadest sense, the Father gave the Son all the words we have in our Bible, everything about creation, about the fall, about redemption, about the new creation, all that the Father has, that that glorious total truth, everything given to the Son. But more specifically, the Father gave the Son a special mission to seek and to save the lost. And all that the Father has is about that mission. It's all that the Father has is about the mission of Christ to seek and save the lost, and that is the heart of the Bible. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Father gave the Son a mission to take away the sin of the world. It was a mission Jesus willingly accepted, a plan to redeem sinners like us from the sin we own and the punishment we deserve. John 10, 17. John 10, 17. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus wanted to bring glory to God the Father. And the way he brought glory to God the Father was by willingly, willingly heeding the Father's charge willingly following the Father's lead, willingly going to the cross. Jesus says, I have authority to take it up again. This charge, this charge to lay down my life, this charge to to die for sinners like you, this charge I received 
from my father. So the father charged the son to lay down his life for sinners like you and me. And this is the gospel. This charge was given to the son to fulfill, and it was then given to the spirit to proclaim. Now, do you see what this means? The whole Bible is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible is not a book of morals. It is not a collection of myths. It is not a guidebook for how to live a more prosperous life. The Spirit has given us a gospel-centered word. All of the prophets and all the apostles pointing out the work of God, the mission that God the Father gave God the Son, that the Spirit proclaimed. The whole Bible is preparing us for the gospel. Now, just to be really clear, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that God made you, and he made you to know him and to love him. You know, God is a, a wonderful king, a, a wonderful creator, and he, he made you so that you could be a great steward of, of all of his creation. You know, if there, was, if there was never sin in the world, you and I would be living perfectly in, under God's good authority. But we all rejected God. Each of us, we, we turned our back on God. We thought, no, God, I can live life better than your way, and so I'm going to live it my way, right? And as a result, because God is holy, God said we deserve judgment. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from God because God is infinitely holy, and we are horribly sinful. And so God in his righteousness is right to punish us. And that's what we deserve. But God in his love sent Jesus Christ into the world on mission to die on the cross for sinners like us, to take upon himself the sins that we committed against God the Father. Jesus, who never, ever sinned, who didn't deserve to die, bearing in his flesh the sins of sinners like us, dying in our place, purchasing our salvation, proving then that everything he said was true and that he has the authority and the power to conquer death and bring life. God raised him from the dead, the resurrection, and now we are all called to repent, to turn away from our sin, to listen to the voice of Jesus, to follow him, to take off our crowns and to trust that Jesus is the only king. Jesus is the king. He is the truth. That's the gospel. And so all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about that good news. All of history is shaped by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is saying in John 16 is that wherever that gospel is proclaimed, Jesus is glorified. The Spirit of God is at work glorifying the Son and that's what the Spirit loves to do. The Spirit loves to glorify the Son by preserving, by protecting, and ultimately by preaching the gospel. And what does this mean for you? It means that you should always read the Bible with an eye for the Savior. You should always read the Bible with an eye for the Savior. We have the Bible because the Spirit wants to glorify the Son. Right, that's why we've got the Bible, because the Spirit wants to glorify the Son. If the Spirit did not want to glorify the Son, which is impossible, but because the Spirit does, He wants to declare to us everything the Son would have us know. So we've got the Bible because the Spirit wants to glorify the Son. The Spirit glorifies the Son. How? By proclaiming everything the Father gave Him to proclaim. 
which is the plan of redemption, which is the gospel. And so for that reason, no matter where you are in your Bible reading, no matter what text you're in, if you're in Leviticus, if you're in Genesis, if you're in Habakkuk, if you're in John, if you're in Revelation, you should be asking yourself the question, what does this passage teach me about the person and work of Jesus Christ? Because that's how the Spirit glorifies the Son. Every, every verse we read, asking the question, what does this teach me about the person and the work of Christ? What does it teach us about the gospel? Right, so teachers, any of you who would ever open the Word of God and, and teach it to someone else, never end your Bible study without asking that question. All right, it means you should always read the Bible with an eye for the Savior. It means that, that you should value Jesus Christ above all else. And how much did the Spirit value the Son? How much? In 2003, a man by the name of Aaron Ralston was mountain climbing in Utah. And while he climbed, a boulder changed position and pinned his arm. For five days, he sat there stuck under that boulder with no one to help him. And uh, in that precarious position, he did what any of us would do. He took out his pocket knife and cut off his arm. Why? You know, I just totally think I would die, you know? I mean, you know, I love my life, but I think I would die. Um, he loved his life more, so he cut off his arm. This morning, I'm asking you to love Jesus more than your life. That's what Jesus would have us do. I think that's where the Spirit of God would lead us. The Spirit loves the Son. How do I know that? Because the Spirit made it His mission to glorify the Son by declaring every word that He heard the Son speak. And if we are filled with the Spirit of the living God, we are going to love the Son too. We're going to make it our mission in life to love, to serve, to follow, to listen to, and to proclaim Jesus Christ. Now, if you are here this morning, you are not a Christian, I won't lie to you, following Jesus will cost you everything. If you love him, you will put him before your job, you will put him before your family, you will put him before yourself. To follow Jesus is to make him and his word what it naturally is, absolutely authoritative in our lives. It's not easy. It's worth it. It's hard, but it's good. Submit your life to Jesus. If you want to be of the truth, you've got to listen to Jesus. He tells us how we can hear him by reading the word that the Spirit guided the apostles to record. If you are a Christian, are you putting Jesus first? Are you pressing ahead? Are you persevering? Are you fighting the good fight of the faith? Are you putting Christ's commands above your desires? If you love Jesus, you will put him before everything, before anything. You will put to sin the death. You will put to death the sin you are toying with. You'll love him and serve him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, all because the Spirit gave us a gospel-centered word. God is truth, and he has revealed himself in his word. And his word is an amazing gift to us. 
And through it, we learn that we aren't here by accident, right? We learn that we are part of God's amazing plan of redemption. How would we know that were it not for the fact that God has spoken? We learn that God made us to know him and love him. We learn that we are important, not fundamentally for what we can do. I just think that's the message of the world. You are as important as you can produce. You got to produce something. You got to produce kids. You got to produce a paycheck. You got to produce a product. You got to produce a lot. You got to produce something. And you are as valuable as what you can produce. And Jesus says, no. You've been made in the image of God the Father. You are valuable. And so now the only wise thing for you to do is submit to the one who, the only one who perfectly bears the image of God, me, Jesus Christ, the one whom the Spirit came to glorify. Listen to me. You want truth? Listen to me. You want value? Value me. The world values the best executives, the best politicians, the best engineers, the best speakers, the best athletes, but whom does Jesus value? Those who are of the truth. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit is still at work. I don't want you to leave this morning thinking, well, I mean, is the Spirit, you know, in the Bahamas, you know, back then? He made sure we had the Bible, and now he's been on vacation for 2,000 years, and, you know, eventually he's going to come back maybe in heaven, and we're going to have a cup of coffee. I mean, no, I don't think so. But I know he's not on vacation. He is at work now, not guiding us into truth the way he guided the apostles into truth, right? That's a unique thing. I mean, none of us write scripture, but the Spirit is at work, right? Guiding us to see the Bible as the Word of God, guiding us to be of the truth, leading us to believe that everything Jesus said is true. It's the Spirit who persuades us of the truth. I love how one pastor put it once. The word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it's sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. In that sense, the Spirit still guides us all into truth, not to write the Bible, but to believe the Bible. The same Spirit, therefore, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets, must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what had been divinely commanded. You see, it's the Spirit who has given us an authoritative word. It's the Spirit who has given us a gospel-centered word. And it is the Spirit who writes that word on our hearts so that every day when we wake up, we believe that everything God said is true. And we trust him. Are you searching for truth? Humble yourself before the Lord and trust that his spirit will guide you into this truth. Are you striving for holiness? Plead with the Lord for the Holy Spirit to give you clean hands and a pure heart. He will not let you down. Are you striving for joy? Pray for a heart that loves the gospel more than your own life. And you will find yourself singing with joy even now. Let's pray.